It all started back in 2013. Data wants to be free. Let's call bullshit on people who are bullshitting us as well, and that's how we're going to build the future of finance, all of us together, and that's how we're going to move forward. Sounds good to me. There's something magical about the crypto valley. You create the money more than any kind of central banks doing. Blockchain will revolutionize trust on a global scale. You can feel the entrepreneurial spirit everywhere. This is Crypto Valley Visionaries Podcast. Crypto Valley Visionaries. Visionaries. Welcome to Crypto Valley Visionaries Podcast. This is your host, Ivana, here. And together with my co-host, Ralph, in this podcast, we interview entrepreneurs and visionaries from the global blockchain scene. Together, we explore how blockchain technology is changing the world, and we discuss different stories from their entrepreneurial journey. Today, we get to sit down with Mona Elisa. Mona entered trading floor in Goldman Sachs when she was 18. She was promoted to a vice president by the age of 26, and she traded profitably during 2008 and 2011 financial market crashes. After leaving Goldman, Mona worked in a hedge fund. Later on, she started one of her own, and this first venture led to her second venture, Melonport, a startup that built Melonport Protocol for managing digital assets. In this episode, we talk with Mona about what made her succeed as a trader in Goldman Sachs. We also talk about how she overcame her first business failure and how after becoming interested in blockchain, she started a company that successfully built and released an asset management protocol. Mona also shared her thoughts on hiring new employees and the importance of always being on the lookout for talents. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social media. Now, sit back, relax and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Crypto Valley Visionaries podcast, Mono Elisa. It's great you're here. Um, you're conceived of Melonport, the protocol for asset management and um, setting out to revolutionize how asset managers work and certainly how Ethereum is deployed, uh, is used in this environment. So it's, it's great that you're here. Um, Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks for coming. So many people know that, you know, you, you came out of, you went to join, you joined Goldman Sachs straight out of school in a trading environment. And then at some point you discovered uh, Bitcoin. So what made you choose an investment bank first? And then how did you find the light, as we would say, in this decentralized world? So, uh, yeah, thanks for the question. I think um, maybe to start off, I guess maybe... Uh, it's a compliment that you asked that. Maybe that means I um, I'm younger than I actually, or I look younger than I actually am because uh, Bitcoin didn't exist back then when I went into investment banking. But uh, I came out of uh, university. Actually, I was in university thinking about my career and what I wanted to do, and actually I felt uh, very lost. Um, and um, w- one day, a friend of mine uh, dragged me to a careers fair, and um, we watched a presentation of Goldman Sachs. Um, and I thought, hey, they look actually quite interesting. I've always been interested in the stock market. Uh, had seen my my father playing around sometimes, and I, I thought it was quite uh, interesting. And um, so I applied to, for a job um, that uh, that Easter, a, a small internship. I got rejected, um, but I didn't give up. I kept uh, applying, and the following summer, I got an internship. And uh, um, yeah, and uh, basically that internship led to a full time position as soon as I uh, graduated from university. So, so the the career really started uh, straight out of university. I was very young. I think I joined. Uh, I first entered the trading floor when I was eighteen, and uh, it was a for me it was a big buzz. It was a, an exciting environment. Uh, there were not um, there were not many women around on the trading floor. There was uh, definitely quite some large and often shocking personalities. Um, and I was, uh, in comparison, quite shy and timid. Uh, and uh, But it was, um, I think, fast forward a year, I found my element and I realized I can also be quite loud and I can also be quite convincing. And I work probably 10 times harder than most people, um, not necessarily the cleverest, but I, I work very hard. And uh, and so, you know, I put in the hours and um, I started to, you know, prove that I could do certain things. And then with that came the confidence and and uh, had an almost decade of uh, fun years in, in, in Goldman trading uh, long-short equities, uh, primarily market-making and proprietary trading. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the proprietary trading, which was basically managing uh, Goldman's um, investments, 
was uh, was doing quite well. So over the years, they gave uh, they trusted me with more and more, and uh, also they allowed me to broaden my scope into other asset classes. So initially, I started just looking at equities, and then it sort of went to um, commodities, and then options, and then credit, and uh, many other things. And it was a lot of fun learning all the new asset classes and being able to express positions in different um, you know in different ways. And they really, you know, they really fostered my creativity and my um, excitement. So back then, Bitcoin crypto uh, was not around, or at least I was not aware of it. And it was uh, only in 2008, which I, um, which was actually during my time there. And I certainly didn't know about Bitcoin back then. We were way too busy dealing with the sure. repercussions of the credit crisis and Lehman. And this was a fascinating time, uh, you know, as a... Uh, um, as sad as it was for for to see the market uh, react like that, it was also uh, like having front row seats in a cinema to watching something unravel, and it was uh, it was quite fascinating time. Um, and um, yeah, and in 2011, basically, I got approached by uh, a client of ours uh, who used to trade with us a lot, and he tried to hire me. And um, basically, his hedge fund was based in Geneva. And he asked me to come and be a long short equity portfolio manager for him. And I had always kind of wanted to work in a hedge fund as well. Uh, I'd seen all these, uh, I'd got to know a lot of the big hedge fund personalities from my role. And um, yeah, they seemed uh, aspiring and it was interesting kind of to to meet them. They all seemed, uh, yeah, all very interesting characters. And this one in particular, I thought was um, interesting. I had a, a good relationship with him. And uh, when I joined uh that firm, it was really an exciting time as well. We did four years uh, long short equity with him. And then I, I was basically approached by a German family office while I was in Geneva who asked me, would you like to launch your own fund and we will seed it? And um, I said, that sounds awesome. I mean, this is really the dream now. Of course. Yeah. And, uh, and so I said, how much will you seed me? And they said 20 million, which was not much compared to what I was used to managing. But um, I thought, hey, you know, it's going to be my company and it's going to be something that I can grow. And, um, you know, I'm a hard worker and I can do this. I've always been able to figure things out in tough situations and uh, and rough environments so I can make this work, you know. So I went in very confidently and I would say that that was probably my first big epic failure as a entrepreneur. Um, I was very naive going into this process, uh, having always worked at very large uh, investment bank and then a very large hedge fund. You know, starting a fund with 20, 30 million, I, I managed to raise another 10 million alongside that, although it was incredibly hard to put that together um, and very time consuming and draining. Um, you know, the, the, the fact is that when you're such a small fund in this uh, asset management space, it's very hard to, you know, survive. It's a very, very, very uh, operationally and administratively uh, intensive job. We are, um, the infrastructure that asset management is based on today is archaic. I don't think they, uh, use any technology and if they do, it's very, very old technology. And, um, you know, the time and energy it was taking for me to just, uh, make these processes work and book trades and report trades and reconcile and, uh, manage PNL and, you know, take fund administrator calls, et cetera, uh, was extremely draining. After a year, I decided that, uh, you know, this, this wasn't sustainable. I had been working 18 hour days, um, you know, several days a week, including weekends. And, uh, and I just reached a, a rock bottom and I said, I, I can't do this anymore. This is, uh, this is really, um, you know, it's not fair to my investors. It's not fair to me. Um, so I returned the capital to my investors. I explained to them the situation and, uh, I was really, really down after that. Um, I um, had never really failed at anything in my life before. Um, I think also here in Europe, we don't take failure very well, uh, just as a kind of, uh, from a kind of psychological point of view, you know, in, in, I later found out that in the US, uh, you know, failing is celebrated. Um, but we certainly didn't, um, I certainly didn't feel that way when, when that happened. I felt very down and I felt I needed to take a year off and recharge my batteries. I didn't want to go back in my career, so I didn't want to go back to an investment bank. I didn't want to go back to a large hedge fund. I felt like I had already done that. Actually, the one thing I had really wanted to do, I couldn't do. And I, I was just amazed by, you know, I was amazed by that. I had the, the perfect CV, if you like, for, for launching a fund. Or 
maybe not perfect, but I would say very strong. Uh, I should have been a very strong candidate yeah. to launch a fund. Um, so I took a year out. Uh, I did a, a month uh, to recharge my batteries in a yoga and meditation retreat. Then I did the, the whole, you know, um, uh, got on a plane to Brazil and I you know, started surfing out there and le learned how to surf. And one day I was uh, sitting on a beach and um, reading an article about Bitcoin, which my brother had mentioned to me a couple of years before. And my brother, uh, he's, a, yeah, he's a very smart guy. He works at Google and... Uh, you know, he had asked me two years prior, what do you think of Bitcoin over dinner? And I said, I don't know what it is. And, uh, and he, he's not a big fan of bankers. So he started ranting about you bankers, you think you're so smart and you don't even know what Bitcoin is. You're pathetic and all of these kind of things. And, you know, to be honest, I had been too busy to follow up on it. And, but it had always kind of sat at the back of my mind. So I read a couple of articles about it and then it led me to, uh, I was completely fascinated. It blew my mind. I, of course, read the white paper, then it led me to Ethereum. And then, you know, basically the next few days were consumed with just reading on the subject. And then I discovered Crypto Valley, which is where we're sitting right now. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, wow, what is the chance of that? The Crypto Valley is at my doorstep because I lived in Zurich at the time. This is uh, kind of where I launched my fund from. So I still had my apartment and I, I looked at the beach and I, I could, you know, I was like, what's the point of being here? I'm on my phone, laptop all the time reading about uh, crypto. And I said, okay, my uh, two months into my year off, I took a plane back to Switzerland mm -hmm. and I just immersed myself here in, right. in the valley. So very early days. And so that's basically how I, yeah, how I, long story on that, how I stumbled into crypto. That's great. Mona, and you have a very interesting story. Uh, the fact that you started in investment banks so early uh, and you mentioned that uh, when you joined there, you had to kind of find your way around very quickly and to acquire new skills and to prove that you can actually do the job. So I wonder uh, what were the skills that you had to learn very early and what skills a professional trader has to have to succeed, to be successful in career? Uh, so I, I would imagine that the answer to that question is probably, my, or my answer to that question is probably a bit outdated since I haven't been a trader now for a while. Um, and, you know, being a good trader, what, what is being a good trader? I think it changes with the times as well. So you know, when I when I first joined, um, one of the things that really set me aside, I think, from uh, the tr the other traders on the floor, in general, were that I was uh, I was kind of thoughtful, curiosity. I wasn't just interested in the trading, but I was really curious about the underlying asset behind it. And so I used to immerse myself into the research reports, which, to be honest with you, wasn't our job. But I used to say, I want to understand what it is that I'm trading. I used to really dig deep ask questions. I used to go up to the research floor and find out, okay, so I'm making markets in mining stocks. Tell me about this mining stock. How many mines does it have? Where are they based? How many reserves do they have left? How, you know, uh, and then I used to go to the volatility desk and I used to say to the derivatives traders, tell me what's the vol like on this, uh, on this stock, you know, what can I, what, what information can you give me that will be useful to trading cash equities from your volatility mm -hmm. perspective? And then I would go to the credit traders on the first floor and ask, you know, similar questions. And, you know, at the beginning, you know, uh, uh, it was really just going, it was really just the curiosity and the interest and the passion for what I was doing. And so that gave me an edge, which I think previously people thought, you know, previously, and, and it kind of, and, and to be honest, it wasn't me that set that trend. It was my mentor. I think there was only one other kind of youngish trader on the floor at the time who, who ended up becoming, becoming my mentor and was my mentor for a long time. And he kind of set that trend and, and, and because he was my mentor, I was fortunate enough to um, follow in his footsteps and kind of adopt his style or, um, or, you know, I kind of customize it to my own, you know, personality a bit, but, uh, but I sort of followed the pattern a bit. And, and that really gave uh, me an edge because after that point, um, you know, when uh, salespeople used to come to my desk and say, what, you know, what do you think of, uh, you know, BHP bulletin. Um, I used to say, well, I think it's a buy because of X, Y, Z, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And by the way, also volatility is really attractive. And so you could play it by a call option and you could sell this to fund it. And, and so I used to give them really great trade ideas and then they would look smart in front of their clients. And then their clients would ask them more questions, which they couldn't always answer. answer. Mm -hmm. And so they would come to me and then they would say, actually, are you free for dinner? you know, um, tomorrow I'm going out with the client. And so basically I, I sort of played this hybrid role where I was a trader, but also I was going out with clients almost, um, daily. 
And as a result, you know, they were so uh, grateful for the trade ideas or the insight I was giving them that they were just throwing tons of uh, orders towards us. And we were just, you know, having number one. Mar when I when I joined, we had number 13 market share in our in my sector when I took that sector over and they gave it to me, actually, because it, because was, a, it was low. No one else wanted it. <laughs> 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 and so I said, I'm going to make something. The out only of this, woman on you know? the floor, probably. One yeah. of the women, right? <laughs> they were just like, I'll oh, give it to her. Yeah. And I was very lucky. I, I mean, part of it was luck, you know, because it actually I recognized that this, this sector was very undervalued and I started making a lot of noise about it and I was right and it was mining uh, and um, commodity stocks at the time and you know China boom started mm -hmm. in 2004 and that whole very bullish global macro and because of that I was you know suddenly the, the least attractive stock by the way reminds me of having flashbacks of crypto yes, recently you know <laughs> but uh, it was um, it was a really um, you know a great mentorship it was uh I have to say very hard work and initiative from my side and i and i also think that um being um, also a bit of luck is always helpful i was in the right place at the right time um so yeah so would you say then that for example if you want to succeed in um in your career or or in, in your field then uh, it pays off to be the most knowledgeable person uh definitely helps i mean you know you can't uh, position yourself as any kind of visionary or you know uh you know um expert if you don't know a lot about what you're doing um you know there's i think two styles to success i i believe there's the sell, the sales approach where you can you know sell your way through life and um it works for many people it's not my style i i i can't sell things that i don't understand i'm a terrible salesperson when i don't understand what i'm selling mm -hmm. so for me the approach is understand When I understand, take a view and then sell. And that I think that philosophy works for whether it was trading, whether it was uh, working, you know, um, being an entrepreneur uh, and selling the vision or anything else. Like I just kind of feel that that's, there's two approaches. You have to figure out which one you're comfortable with and then, you know, and, and which one you're good at. So you returned uh, by plane uh, from the beach, right? So you landed in in, in Zurich, um, and then suddenly you were like uh, all over the place with your with your protocol idea and and and, and your co-founder. Uh, so Reto, yeah. Reto, how, how did you meet? Uh, you know, and 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 I know Ivano will press you on, you know. Mm -hmm. how how to choose the right co-founders but you know how, maybe how did you meet them yeah so actually uh that's um an interesting uh, uh story as well so when i uh arrived back from brazil i started to attend the bitcoin meetups which were about eight or nine people at the time and all technologists and um they were a bit surprised to see me arrive at this meeting you know i was uh the only woman and i was uh, the only non technologist they were like there's someone um, actually, they didn't even bother to ask me who I was. Or the first thing they said. So to that me, was the, the the Bitcoin meetup, was which was founded by I think, but uh, Decker was early and Christian Decker. That's the on Wednesdays. Uh, yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, and so I arrived. I think this was uh, beginning of 2016, like January 2016, and I arrived. And um, the first thing that happened when I sat at the table is someone turned around to me and said you're in the wrong place. This is the Bitcoin meetup. <laughs> really? <laughs> and I said, no, no, I, I, I know. <laughs> I know that's where I want to be. And uh, he rolled his eyes and looked at the guy next to him and they just ignored me for the whole, um, the whole hour uh, or two hours, oh, whatever. Wow. And, uh, you know, it was just these dinners, like it wasn't a presentation or anything. People just, they were just uh, talking, talking about, about uh, hash rates and stuff. And I didn't understand any of it. It was too technical for me. And then I would go home in the evening and Google some of these keywords and try to understand them better that they were talking about. And then I would show up the next week and the next and the first and week. And which year was this? January 2016. Oh, 20. And I, the, the first three times, I, um, I, I don't think anyone really said a word to me. And then, uh, and then the third uh, time, um, uh, I think it was Andre Volke turned around to me and said, um, okay, I'm sorry, who are you and what do you want here? Like everyone wants to know, so I'm just going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I said to him, look, this is, um, this is, this is my background. This is, uh, this is what happened. This is how I discovered Bitcoin. And now I really just want to learn, but, uh, 
this discussion is uh, a bit too technical for me, but I'm I'm trying. So just uh, ignore me. Just let me listen. I will do my own homework. And when I'm ready, I will participate. But for now, I'm just an observer. And um, and he said, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, we never had anyone from finance interested in Bitcoin. <laughs> and um, And he said, well, I have an idea. He said, how about you? Um, he said, there are so many interesting startups coming out in, in Switzerland and uh, so many interesting kind of students doing uh, cool stuff from ETH and all the other top universities here. And uh, they're very good technically, but they don't have any idea on how to set up a company or business or projections or entrepreneurship. And maybe you could mentor them and, uh, and it could be an exchange of information. They teach you about the technology and you teach them about... Uh, you know, or you you mentor them, maybe not teach them about uh, how to set up a business, etc. So um, yeah, so that's what I did. So I was helping uh, quite a few startups, uh, you know, voluntarily, and uh, that's uh, what helped drive my or build my knowledge base. And one of those uh, guys was Reto. So actually, Reto had um, the idea for Melon, and um, it wasn't called Melon back there. I think it was called Hedge Suisse back then okay. when he first brought the idea to me. And uh, we, uh, you know, we, he presented it to me was uh, when I finally understood what, uh, you know, what the idea was, it uh, connected a few dots in my head. And I thought this could be, I mean, a kind of, uh, we build this out, not, not in that format exactly, but if we build it out, this could be, you know, the solution to the problem I had last year, yeah. you know, mm. we could automate all of asset management and we could um, build an entire new infrastructure, which is much more modern, automated, etc. So that's um, how, you know, the whole idea of Melon was born. Or uh, The company was founded in summer 2016, I think August officially. Uh, but there was a lot of work that went into it in the months before then. And um, yeah, and then we, yeah, that was, well, the rest is... The rest is history. So the rest is history, yeah. <laughs> So you built a team after that, right? So you you you're there. You have a co-founder, or or he picked you. I don't know. Maybe he picked you, or you picked him. Uh, that's we were co-founders. Yeah, yeah. And then you 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 scaled the team. You know, probably quite quickly. You delivered. So you know, how how can you? Yeah. So we never became one of those huge teams. Actually, sure. at the peak, we had twelve uh, employees. So okay. um, I, I actually, it's an interesting uh, question. Scaling. Um, until we were eight people, I found it quite easy to manage a company. Uh, as soon as we started going above eight, you know, it starts to become quite difficult to mm -hmm. manage a, a startup. And um, and so looking back on that now, there's probably a, a lot, um, you know, I could have done better in those early years. But I, I would say we never really scaled. We got to 12. It was a comfortable size for us. We were efficient. We were hardworking, et cetera. Um, we, and so we, we, we delivered things on time, on budget. We were very hardworking and, um, and, um, you know, I guess in terms of hiring, we didn't really have a strategy for hiring. I can't say we had the strategy. I, I would say I have a strategy today, five years later, maybe from lessons learned, but I say, uh, back then, um, we just, uh, we were at conferences, we would talk to people, we would actively be looking at conferences, you know, some of those early mm -hmm. um, crypto, Devcons, very dev heavy, yeah. yeah, conferences. We we did use a, an agency once to find a, a couple of people and uh, that was uh, good. And uh, we also just uh, found people reaching out to us unsolicited and just said, hey, we, we heard what you're working on. It's really cool. We think it's really cool. and. Uh, you know, we'd like to jump on board. And so, so that was, uh, that was nice too. So there was no real strategy today. I would say I have a bit more of a strategy. Um, and I heard, uh, you talking in a couple of other interviews that you observed lack of talents and that it's not easy to hire talents here in Switzerland. Yeah. So, um, I would say this, I, I probably said that a few years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that problem was just limited to Switzerland, um, but I felt that, you know, I think the context there was that we were trying very hard to um, hire Swiss uh, for certain mm -hmm. very specific uh, smart contract based roles. Mm -hmm. And we were struggling to find uh, the talent or the, the, the level that we needed in terms of experience and 
and talent. And um, where you did find it in Switzerland, often they were also setting up a startup. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was very rare. And where it was rare, they were they right they knew that they had something. They knew that they had some skills. So they were also trying to, you know, start something, etc. So uh, we did look internationally. And so we we had some Swiss people on our team, but we also hired internationally. I would say today that I, I I would say today that's probably a very different story because I mean we're five years on the the learning materials are much more easily available to learn solidity it's been around for much longer the documentation is better for, uh, quite a few universities teach it you know back then the only solidity developers there were the people who were really obsessed and you know and fascinated and uh, filtering through and attending meetups and going to these kind of DevCon presentations, et cetera. And what are the lessons about hiring? Because you mentioned that now you kind of have a criteria or are you, not criteria, but that now you kind of have a strategy how you're hiring people? Yeah, well, so I don't think you can ever have um, a strategy uh, per se, but what I have now, and this is quite recent actually, is, um, you know, before I used to say, well, when we need to hire, we'll do an interview we'll start interviewing for people and we'll put out a job advert. And now I'm, I'm thinking much bigger. I think uh, we should always constantly being hi- be interviewing people. We should always be scoping out talent. We should always be f- knowing what else is out there so that we can also compare it to what we have internally um, and, uh, and, and really understand the hiring market. And what that means is that you can, um, you know, when you hit an inflection point or when you need to scale quickly, it's not like you're starting from square zero and you have to go out and start hiring. Um, but, but that you actually have a few candidates you can call immediately and say, we, you know, and mm. you know what the startup world is like mm-hmm. in, in March, everyone was firing in June. Now everyone's hiring again. Right. So because of the March, because of COVID and June, because there just seems to be a crypto boom back. So, you know, it, it, it it's, uh, it's just a fact it's, you know, you know, entrepreneurs have to take tough decisions sometimes. Um, and they have to preserve capital where necessary. And then they sometimes have to take, they have to scale quickly. And so. Um, being more self-aware about that and having been caught off guard a couple of times where we needed to hire and we just didn't have people up our sleeve or uh, has helped my strategy, I guess, is now to be constantly interviewing people. And that philosophy there is also, even if you don't have a hiring position or a role available for someone, if you find someone truly exceptional, you can always figure out how to make mm-hmm. space for that mm-hmm. person. So. And what are some of the skills that you are looking for when you're hiring? So what are the skills that you kind of think are important for your company, but also for you personally? So um, I think, I mean, so apart from the technical excellence, which mm-hmm. I assume is we take for granted yeah. here that I think yeah. everybody would want that. Um, it's a, a passion about what we're doing, a curiosity about what we're doing, showing um, some awareness and knowledge of what's happening in the space and why Melon is, you know, exciting or interesting. Um, I look for teamwork. I look for strong communication. Uh, I think we went down the route of um, having uh, people, you know, strong, de- very strong developers maybe, but can't communicate and um, mm-hmm. definitely not going down that route again. Um, but also, uh, you know, people who, are, um, uh, people who are driven, motivated, want to succeed and, um, and will do whatever it takes, you know, startup mentality. Uh, things that we're not looking for is any kind of precious attitude. You know, anyone who says, you know, I, I come, but I, I don't write tests or I don't uh, do admin. We're not interested in like this is startup world. You know, everyone from me to, you know, the, the every single person on the team does things they don't like to do. Full stop from the CEO founder to the um, assistant. So I think, you know, we just have to accept that startup world is not corporate world. To your question before, what are the differences? Mm-hmm. Yet at Goldman, I had an assistant, I had an intern getting me coffees three times a day. I had whatever. In this world, you know, I'm doing everything I can unless, you know, and, and depending on the environment in the startup, you're doing everything yourself. So, And how does it feel to do everything by yourself? Because I also come from co- corporate background, so I know exactly what you're talking about. And, um, you know, if you work in a bank, you have teams for everything. And here, in, in as, as you mentioned, in, in, in a startup, you have to do everything by yourself. And then... Often you have to do certain tasks that you maybe don't really like to do. And then how do you keep yourself motivated and uh, what do you have? What's your mindset? Yeah, so it's uh, it's just a it's just a part of the job. Like for me, you know, it's um, 
it, the motivation is really the vision that, you know, that's what gets me up every day. The fact that we, this technology, if we succeed, we can empower the long tail of managers, you know, the, the mini, the me's and the mini me's that dream of setting up their funds, but can't break away from the corporate world because it's so, because the alternative is so much more tough. We want to make it much easier for someone to take a risk and say, Hey, I'm good and succeed, you know? So we want to unlock all of that talent. We think we're sure is there and empower them. And so for me, I mean, that's a, when I think about 2015 and how much I suffered in terms of energy drain, in terms of uh, mental state, in terms of uh, exhaustion, um, you know, not because I'm not a strong person or not because I'm not a healthy person. You know, I do my sports, my, my yoga, everything, but really just because, um, you know, the, the, the system, the infrastructure is not set up to handle small to medium sized managers. And I'm, uh, such, such a, I was trying so hard to make this succeed that I b ended up basically burning myself mm -hmm. out. So if I think about how many other people like me there must be who are going through a similar journey, I would imagine, and I've spoken to a lot of people in, after the fact who have had very similar experience. I've even spoken to large hedge fund managers who have plenty of AUM and they also suffer from, from the headaches. So um, if, if I can just remove that pain point, I just find it such an exa exciting proposal and be, you know, use, the, use my failure, use my tough year towards something good. I, I get very excited about that. You know, you mentioned that, you know, adversity, right? I mean, so you faced, you know, it was going, everything was going very well. You were always succeeding, you know, until that very moment when you, when you were really challenged, uh, you know, to the core, maybe if I can use that word. Um, so, you know, but you have since founded at least one more company, maybe more, we don't know of, but, uh, you know, so, so how is it, how is it to, you know, to actually overcome, you know, this, what, what would you advise, you know, startup founders that, that you know, have had a reckoning, a day of reckoning, and then they have to pick themselves up and start again, you know, what, how did you overcome this adversity? I think, uh, so I think first of all, um, I'm not in any way advocating giving up early or giving up, uh, quickly. I think that it's always, uh, stamina is one of the best qualities an entrepreneur can have. Um, but I, I think that at some point, you know, not everyone is lucky. Um, and in that case, I wasn't lucky that time. So maybe I had the hard work and I had the, um, I had the, you know, the hardworking personality. I did my research um, and there were, there was not, there was no luck, right? Which maybe had also helped fuel me in the past. There was also a very, very heavy infrastructure, which made it almost impossible. And so sometimes things don't work out and just being okay with that and accepting it. You know, sometimes when you're an entrepreneur, you can be bringing, bringing a product to market too early. You know, for last year, when I was trying to raise money for my new company, everyone tells us you're too early, you're too early. Don't you worry, you're too early. Don't you worry, you're too early. I heard this so many times, right. you know, and now DeFi is exploding. Okay, maybe we were too early then, but, you know, guess what? If, you're, if you didn't invest back then, now you're investing at 30 times the valuation. So you do, you, so the, the, I guess, um, being able to stick, I, I think being able to stick to your guns and your vision, if you're really confident about something, people will disagree with you all the time. And most of the investors will knock you down and say, this is not a good idea. And you will get so many, unless you're very lucky, you'll get so many rejections before you get uh, a yes. And by the way, I just like to put it on the record because it sounds like my path into Goldman was very easy. Um, yeah. When I did my second round of, you know, I told you I got rejected from the first internship. So when I went again for the second year internship, um, I applied this time to 26 different banks for internship. And before Goldman gave me an offer, 24 of them rejected me, like multiple, multiple offers. I had interviews, some of them rejected me straight out, et cetera. And then Deutsche Bank gave me an, and just, you know, just kind of when things looked really bad, I was like, I'm never going to get an internship. And I don't know why I was even so bothered that time. I just really, and, and, um, you know, Deutsche Bank gave me an offer in an area which I wasn't actually that interested in. And then at the same time, Goldman said, okay, actually we'd like to interview you again and again. So it's, you know, you know, banks which were much less um, well-known than Goldman rejected me before Goldman saw something there. And so, you know, the, 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 there's definitely a lesson in all, my, in all my kind of achievements or failures. Like one of the consistent themes is 
um, I don't give up easily, right? So that, that that's one thing. The second thing is I have really strong, when I have conviction, it's usually very strong conviction. And so um, if you tell me, no, I don't believe in your investment idea, go away. It's not for us. I'll probably be upset about it for a couple of hours. It hurts. It's a bit, uh, I find fundraising a bit like dating. It's like a rejection right. in a way. You take it personally, et cetera. But you, you, um, my, my personality is once I've observed it and come, you know, come, come back from it, uh, it, it, you know, you, you, life goes on, you have your conviction and you, you, you only need one person to believe in you mm -hmm. and to back you. And so I think those, you know, those kind of qualities are what has helped, you know, in terms of the, the, the challenges or the, you know, kind of keeping, keeping me going, just maybe knowing from experience that when you're persistent and, you know, when you're persistent and you have conviction, high conviction, that things often, not always come right. And if they don't come right, it's okay. You know, usually there's a lesson to learn from that failure. And in my case, it led me to Melon. In other people's cases, it will lead them to other important things in their life. And um, speaking about that, when uh, you mentioned that you you have strong conviction and, and that you are opinionated, then how did you get along with, did you ever, um, as a woman, you know, in a, in a, in a very um, masculine uh, profession, did, did being opinion, opinionated ever get you in trouble with your colleagues, yeah. maybe when you disagreed with yes. some, your superiors yes, or with did. your peers? Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, just one small edit to what you said. So I don't always have high conviction. I said is when I do have high mm. conviction, um, in the, you know, in the, and I'm very happy to admit that in many cases I don't have high conviction, but when I've done my homework and I have high conviction, it's very, uh, hard to shut me up after that. So, so that, that's kind of my, um, my thesis. Uh, yes. Did it get me into trouble? Yes, it did. Did it get me into trouble because I was a woman? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, if anything, I never really felt too, um, at least at Goldman afterwards, yes. But at least at Goldman, I never felt uh, that being a woman, except maybe once, was a handicap. Mm. Um, but um, but in general, I thought my uh, I was treated very fairly and very uh, equally, um, you know, compared to what other stories I've heard. Uh, but yeah, there, there was a, I mean, one story that comes to mind was uh, uh, a, a, a big meeting that was called uh, by a much more senior uh, person than me. And the, 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 they brought all the, the senior MDs into the room. And um, the, the topic was my sector. But this uh, senior guy, you know, wanted to pitch a trade idea in my sector and get the bank to put $300 million behind it. And this... Um, so I was called in for that reason. I was the most junior person in the room and the only female. And so there was 20 people in the room and he pitched his idea. And the whole time he was pitching his idea, I was thinking, oh, I, I, you know, he, he's pitching an idea, which I have been long for the last four years and I've just sold and I've gone short. And he's pitching that the banks go long 300 million. So at the end of his pitch, they went around the room and they said to everybody in the room, what do you think of this trade idea? Because they wanted, you know, they needed all the senior approvals. And everyone went, yep, yep. Approved, 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 and no one. Asked, uh, and then at the end, the the head of trading asked uh, me, Mona, what do you think? And I said, Do you want my honest opinion? And he said, Yes. And I said, I think uh, I said this is. Uh, I said I think you're five years too late on this trade. And because of me, the the bank, the the the, the head of trading didn't let him put the three hundred million dollar, but he did put a fifty million dollar position on. Anyway, that night when I left the office, I was followed by. <laughs> I was, the gentleman, I, was, I was followed by this gentleman home and he actually oh. came down and threatened me. And um, I don't think this was because I was a woman mm. necessarily. I just think he was a very aggressive personality. Mm. And, um, and I said to him, um, you know, look, uh, you're much more senior than me. You've done a, a lot more research than me on this trade idea. Um, I I'm entitled to speak my opinion. And if you, you know, if you have um, counter arguments to what I said, you should be able to stick up for your trade idea. It's not because one junior person in a room of 50 says no to your trade idea that, you know, your trade idea shouldn't be allowed to be. If, you're, if it was solid enough, you know, you should, you should have been able, to, you should have mm -hmm. been able to, to, to rebut my arguments, right? So sorry that you spent the last two years researching this, but sometimes it's good to, you know, mm -hmm. to, to be challenged.
then it's important to base your or, or to always say facts and then i think facts win over yeah i think i mean so you can never know for sure how an investment is going to be i'm not trying to say that i can predict the future i don't think anyone can predict the future but i think that um i think that you can um you can do your homework and you can hedge against um things you should know right so my mm. my my feeling is that like if you if you take all the things there are certain things that are within your control and it's your duty as a investor or as a trader to know what those things are and to be comfortable with those things like the fundamentals the uh positioning around the stock or the you know whatever and um and if uh, if you're caught out on one of those things because you didn't know it and you were pitching this idea then that's your problem you should be able to defend your case then there are things outside of your, you know, if Corona hits and the market falls 40%, that's nobody's fault. Nobody could have seen that coming, right? Or maybe, okay, maybe some people could have predicted it in November, but you know what I mean? It's not, this is more of an overall uh, macro risk that you yeah. couldn't have. But at the micro level, you should know your stuff. So that's kind of, that was my, yeah, that's kind mm -hmm. of my, there's always things that are out of your hand, but you should minimize the stuff that, you should minimize the errors in the stuff where you can mm -hmm. control it. So uh, picking up on the future, so you know, so at some point in in the conception and the thinking about melon, uh, you need you needed to develop uh, you needed to develop melanomics, which yes. is a really cool word, by the way. Um, meaning, you know, how can you use a token to interact in this environment, and what you know, and and anticipate a lot of aspects. So. Uh, while we may not want to talk about the technical details, you know, you still you had to conceive of something that very few people had any idea, or if anyone still has an idea, by the way, uh, today, mm. how these economic uh, systems will work. You know, it's, it's not quite clear how it will develop. So, how did it feel, you know, doing that? Um, that at was the, at uh, the time and still today. I mean, you're still you're still in DeFi, right? So, so. Uh, yeah, I loved uh, the tokenomics work, actually. I it really, really enjoyed working. It was really challenging stuff um, because I felt tokenomics was still very new back then. Um, but uh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, the concept is actually quite simple. Um, it's basically the idea that uh, we borrow the idea that Ethereum has, for, which is gas for the network. Mm -hmm. um, and they, the way they calculate it is number of computational units times the gas price of mm -hmm. Ethereum. And so that's how much you as a consumer pay when right. you're and gas prices fluctuate. And we have the same concept in Melon. You know, the, the only difference is that here, when we collect the gas, we also, uh, not we, the system burns it. And so this creates a sink, a token sink. And so when you have a direct removal of supply, which is linked to usage, you then have a very interesting idea, which is that you can directly link the value of your token to the usage of the network. Right. And I think that's what makes Melon very unique as a token. If we manage to win the game of asset management infrastructure, and we are now five years from now hosting multiple billions of dollars on the network, a MLN token will be worth um, a lot. And so because it's worth a lot, that means the pool of available capital, because on the other side of the tokenomics, melanomics, is the, uh, there's a fixed amount of inflation that's created or a fixed amount of maximum inflation that can be created every year. And that's used to incentivize maintainers and developers of the network. Yeah. And so for As the a reward. Exactly. A reward, yeah. yeah. And so for the for the network to have integrity, uh, high security, high quality work, et cetera, it should have some value. Otherwise people won't be incentivized to build on it. And so um and so uh, as a you know, the, the the nice thing is like it's kind of a circular effect. If you develop good stuff for the protocol, more people will use it. And if more people use it, the, the value of the MLN goes up, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a nice um, kind of circular effect. And um, yeah, it was a really fun piece of work to 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 figure out. Um, it was fun also researching all the other tokenomics models out there. I think, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm, we're, we're still very happy with the model. But actually, just a side note to that, it's actually in um, discussion right now. Um, it's being discussed whether uh, enhancements can be made. So actually, we, you know, as you know, we decentralized sure, the protocol yes. um, a year and a half well, ago. There's proposals, you know, for the audience. Yeah, yeah. people can propose changes to exactly. the protocol. 
So very recently, there was a, a very exciting proposal made by uh, three uh, young gentlemen, uh, Tom Shaughnessy from Delphi Digital, which is a very strong crypto research house in the US, um, and also Ceteris Paribus and Chris Manessis from Moonchain Capital. Mm -hmm. And uh, they came together and they worked on a proposal to further enhance melanomics. And the idea is basically linking, um, linking uh, instead of a fee to one-off setup costs to actually linking it to the assets under management of the network. Mm. So even further value accrual. And it's, uh, it's actually more complex than that, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a nice to see the community starting to participate in some of these ideas mm. and leveraging the wisdom of the crowd, et cetera. And, and that, that's been quite exciting lately. So the protocol continues to develop, right? Uh, you know, there's better interfaces now. You're working, uh, I mean, you and the community are working on the interfaces um, to interact with the protocol a little bit more easily. Yes. Um, you know, I have, I have basically two questions, you know, on this space. So one is you have delivered, you know, a useful, a usable system uh, to the world, and uh, which was set out by, by the project. Um, and I wondered, how do you see, and at the same time, you know, the institutional world, the legacy institutional world is uh, now coming around saying, yes, digital assets are here to stay. We recognize uh, the advantages of uh, some of these, um, you know, in instruments and, and, and also maybe the infrastructure they don't understand yet, but they kind of like understand the asset class and just mm -hmm. based on that. But so you're you're developing something and you're giving something useful. At the same time, you have this legacy environment that is just slowly catching on. What is the most exciting development, you know, in the legacy world towards what you have set out uh, to do uh, that that you see? You know, in other words, where's the institutional adoption? Oh, I think. Um... We're actually starting to see signs of uh, institutions approaching us asking, you know, DeFi is hot. How can we launch a DeFi product to launching your thing, your your protocol? You know, okay. we think there's a lot of demand. We've got people asking us around this and we've got people asking us how to do it. Um, I think that's one exciting thing. Well, I think that's still early days, but seems to be happening a lot more recently. Um, the second thing is, um, to be honest, it's just uh, seeing talent move from traditional finance to crypto finance. And I think um, I think that's actually been really fun to watch, you know, um, that five years ago, I can't imagine uh, that many people were brave enough to leave their stable jobs in banking or whatever to 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 come over to blockchain there that you, you can see it now. There aren't that many you know people with strong finance backgrounds mm -hmm. in, in DeFi today. Today, I'm seeing a lot more um, newbies coming in from finance and uh, even in the job applications, we're seeing people who have strong finance background, uh, maybe taught themselves coding in the last few years and want to get involved. And so that's actually uh, a really interesting trend. And lastly, you know, you know, it's good when, uh, you know, it's interesting when there are, uh, your friends from banking are messaging you saying, yes. uh, how do I buy uh, <laughs> Bitcoin, you know, when, mm -hmm. when three years ago you were having dinner with them and they were saying it's a scam and, and all that. So I think uh, oh, those are yeah. three kind of interesting okay. touch points. Interesting. Interesting. And um, I would like to go back to um, this part where you were saying um, how you, you took a year off after you realized that uh, your project was not going uh, the way that you expected it to go. And um, you also mentioned that you work long hours and that uh, you, after, once you quit, you, you really, you, you kind of felt almost burnt out. And I can imagine that there are a lot of other uh, entrepreneurs who are watching this or listening to this uh, in the same situation, working really long hours and um, there are ups and downs. And then sometimes they feel or they think maybe is this really worth it? And they have, they, they're struggling with doubts. Yeah. So can you tell us how, um, how did you feel? How did you feel back then? And then how did you feel once you realize, okay, now I, I, I quit and then I move on. And how did you overcome this emotionally? Yeah, so uh, I can answer that question very easily, actually. So for me, one thing that um, I um, struggled with in the in the sort of uh, period when I set up a fund was uh, I didn't want to accept that this wasn't working out. I had uh, been begging people for capital. You know, aside from my seed capital, I raised ten million. Much of it was from family and friends. And I didn't want to have to go back to them six months later and say, sorry, this hasn't worked out um, because it, I felt it would make me look weak. And somehow I felt trapped in a 
marriage that I didn't want to be in, if you if you like to use that analogy, right? And I think that's actually what uh, what burnt me. You know, I stopped mm-hmm. loving what I was doing. I stopped feeling passionate about it. And deep down somewhere in there, I knew that this isn't going to work, right? And so that's what ultimately, but I, but I still wanted it to work and I still was trying, you know, out of, uh, uh, yeah, goodwill, like, you know, to try and make it work. And I really tried. The, the, the real turning point and the awakening point for me was actually when I ended up in hospital. And uh, I, I don't actually think I ever shared this story with anyone before, but, uh, you know, I was kind of, um, I don't want to go into the details, but basically I was so burnt out that I had to spend uh, a couple of days in hospital. And, um, and that was um, for me, you know, probably a week to recover after that. And that was a real wake up moment that nothing is worth, um, you know, your health at that mm-hmm. point. And I thought, you know, part of the reason for taking a year off was kind of a reaction to that and saying, you know, I, I need this time to to recover, et cetera. But actually what I've realized now in hindsight, and I, I work just as hard now and I'm fine, you know, I've never had another incident like that again. But I think when you're truly believing and passionate about what you're doing, you're comfortable in your vision and you're not doing it because you feel trapped, you're doing it because you really want to be doing it. Um, then somehow you, at least me, and I can't speak for everyone, uh, at least I find the energy to keep going and I find the drive and the motivation. Uh, so I think that's kind of, for me, um, the difference between the two. Mm. Um, and I think that, um, it's probably also worth mentioning, um, that not everybody has what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And I think it's worth, um, knowing yourself, you know, um, and, and what you're good at, what you're bad at and, and how you manage long hours versus, you know, and really thinking carefully about what you want uh, in life, because whether you like it or not, being an entrepreneur will take up a lot of time and there will be ups and downs. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be okay with volatility, uncertainty, uh, long hours, uh, you know, doing admin-y things and all of that kind of stuff. Um, And if you don't have that personality and maybe you don't know until you try it, but then, you you know, you you should, you should be honest with yourself about it and, and, and not, you know, because, because again that leads to a situation where you feel trapped again so speaking about you know entrepreneurs so you are uh, you're still in the crypto valley yes um how has it changed so uh, how, how do you see the institutional framework you know also for people to start you know um we had this conversation with a number of ho- uh, guests before and uh you know and from the outside uh, of switzerland uh, people would would ask many times why would you why would you found in switzerland you know mm. why why switzerland it's expensive it's difficult to find people um but still you know we have this incredibly vibrant ecosystem now mm. and uh, and people come here to to found so maybe you know how has it changed from when you started to today and 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 how is your outlook for this for this entrepreneurial uh, or or for this you know, for this ecosystem that that really attracts a lot of entrepreneurs and coders. Yeah, so I think it's changed a lot in the last five years. I mean, when we first set up a company here, um, there weren't many other people here. I think we were one of the only companies that actually set up, had an office and had real staff here. And uh, today it's a very different story. I think, you know, we're, uh, we see a lot of companies who are actually phys- physically based here. So going back to your first question, the reason I set up here, it's not, it, it was actually... Not, not, not too much thought went into it, to be honest. I was already living in Switzerland. My co-founder was living in Switzerland. And uh, there were only really two hubs for blockchain, Singapore and, uh, and Zug back then. So it was a very easy decision. We're not going to Singapore. We both live here. So what, what would be the point? Um, but in terms of uh, how the ecosystem has developed here, uh, so yes, it's expensive, uh, but that doesn't mean you can't hire people abroad as well uh, who are less expensive. But, you know, it, it's definitely a consideration. But at the same time, you really have a very st- strong support network. The Canton of Zug has been uh, really, really helpful to us from day one. Uh, very supportive, always door open. That's the beauty of uh, the, you know, the cantonal system and having such a welcoming, um, um, you know, accessible yeah. team of people. Uh, you know, then the Crypto Valley Labs, of course, uh, popped up and then we had... Uh, you know, actually, I'm walking around today just before this interview thinking uh, there's like a new work hub on every corner and it never used to be the case. And I, I yeah, it's, it quite has starts to really have a buzz about it. And, you know, I think now when I walk in the streets, uh, it's it's hard for me to walk from here to the lake without bumping into three people in crypto that I know. And, and that's quite a nice uh, buzz feeling to it. 
That's great. And how how much are you looking forward to? Uh, I'm not sure how how much you have looked at the at this DLT Act, but you know, obviously, the regulatory framework, uh, general comment, you know, on the regulatory framework. Um, obviously, there's a lot of assets management in Switzerland. Um, uh, they certainly still live in the medieval times, uh, you know, uh, or or even further uh, back, you know, uh, in terms of technology that they're using. Mm. But um, you know, how do you anticipate, or, or how do you see this regulatory framework really helping helping you going forward? Uh, I think it's still in the works, if I'm not mistaken. And so I don't know too much about it, except uh, the rumors and the the words and okay. the, the 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 points that are being batted back and forth. Uh, the one thing I would say is that I think um, DLT or you know decentralized finance is uh, is a huge it's a huge deal. For finance, you know, I think um, so. I think putting anything that is restraining or constraining on entrepreneurs at this stage from a regulatory front would be a very bad idea. I think um, empowering them and enabling them to to create uh, the next, you know, infrastructures that will underpin will keep Switzerland's um, competitive advantage. Uh, in, in you know, it's always been seen as one of the financial hubs globally. And I think that um, making so you can you can do that in a way where you still encourage some sensibility. So, for example, you know, uh, um, you know, if you're, you know, def silly, there's a lot, there's a big de debate about whether you are, what, what's the definition of operating a protocol or what or operating mm -hmm. a DEX or something like that. And I think uh, giving clarity to people and giving uh, openness to people as much as possible, like to be to be able to build these things without having to worry that the next day they'll be shut down is very important. And then you can worry about the details later. I think more importantly than the regulations, they should be thinking about what uh, warnings to give users, right? Uh, when you go in, you should always, if you're going to use a protocol, you should make sure it's been audited once, twice. Even then you're not guaranteed. So only use the funds that you're prepared to lose. Uh, you know, do you have insurance? There are now lots of protocols offering insurance for DeFi. Yeah. Maybe you should consider getting insurance if you don't get insurance. And so I think it's more important to highlight what the users should be doing than to try and stopping uh, the innovators, okay. the builders. Cool. What are some of the biggest learnings from corporate, from your corporate career that, that helped you in leading your startups? Um, I guess, I mean, Goldman was probably a good uh, place to learn about stamina and long hours, <laughs> 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 early starts, etc. Uh, so I think that... Um, has helped soften the the shock to an entrepreneur's <laughs> life for sure. Um, I think being empowered at such a young age by Goldman was a really big lesson, you know, really uh, allowing young, uh, exceptional talent to flourish. And um, I think when I, I really think about that a lot when I'm hiring, it's okay. You know, you, you really want to be hiring people who are better than you. And I can safely say that everyone on my team is much smarter than me. So I think I've done well on that uh, front. Um, and, and that's, that's actually how you grow and you become successful by hiring people who are better than you. So that's been a big lesson. And, um, yeah, uh, third lesson, um, um, from the corporate world. Um, yeah, like I, I guess just sticking to conviction when you have it and, you know, kind of, uh, working hard and sticking to conviction when you have it. Related to work and life balance, uh, what is it that you learned that um, is important to do to keep the work and life balance? And how do you do, what do you do to relax after working long hours? Uh, what is important? So I, um, I find um, breathing uh, great as a mm -hmm. form of relaxation. I, I start my day every day with doing uh, some breathing exercises and I find it's a, a great way to start the day. Uh, I find yoga very relaxing. So I try to do that once or twice a week. And um, you know, and then in the in the evenings, I mean, for me, the relaxation is, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I mean, I have to be honest, I, I do work a lot of evenings, so I'm not <laughs> sure there's always that much relaxation really depends on the period. Um, but I think um, I think I think the most important thing is that when you're not working to make sure you're present and that you're uh, there, not on your phone, you know, when you're spending time with family and friends, not that you're on the phone all the time and whatever, but that you're making sure that that's quality time. And that when you're working, you're working, and when you're not working, you're you're present, and that you're enjoying the moment. And I think that's the the secret to the work life balance, really. Mm, great. So at the end of our interviews, um, one of these, we always ask uh, 
for like three important or the best uh, uh, tips or recommendations you can give uh, entrepreneurs, but within 90 seconds. So, <laughs> so I, I would say the first one is really find your form of relaxation. Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, for me, it was breathing. It doesn't have to be breathing, but something that you can do for 15 minutes a day it doesn't take too much time, but that really uh, relaxes you. Um, the second is uh, don't give up. I mean, if you're if you're passionate and you really believe in something and you have high conviction, don't give up easily. You know, it's not that you the first problem you you halt or the second problem you should give up. I mean, uh, it can take a year and a half, even longer sometimes for things to really come to fruition. So give it a try. And the third is really just to um, accept that sometimes you're wrong or unlucky and things don't work out. But that to uh, to, to you know whenever there's a, a tough time or a failure or anything like that. Uh, to look at the other side of the coin and think, what did you learn from that? And 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 know kind of with some secret confidence that uh, that that lesson will will take you somewhere good. You know, whether it's in personal life or professional life in future. Great, amazing. Well, thanks for coming. Thanks Anna. a lot. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. This was another episode of Crypto Valley Visionaries Podcast. Make sure to follow us when the mics are off on LinkedIn and Twitter at CV underscore labs or visit our website at CVlabs.com.